This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 9th of November. And thank you for listening and for helping to make this one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. And a warm welcome to our new listeners in Singapore, Japan, Sweden, and Finland, where we are gaining in popularity according to the pod statistics. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's Vice President Han Zheng said Wednesday that recent high-level meetings have helped improve the China-US relationship. Mr. Han said the meetings have sent out positive signals and raised the expectations of the international community on the improvement of China-US relations. He added, we're ready to strengthen communication and dialogue with the US at all levels. President Xi Jinping has called for more state investment in the energy and railway sectors to safeguard national security as he shifted focus from a previous emphasis on the need for market-orientated restructuring. These natural monopolies, as he called them, are already controlled by state-run entities and will be a priority destination for the investment of state capital, President Xi said. The late Premier Li Keqiang had previously pledged to deepen reform of natural monopolies and open them up to competition from the market. People's Bank of China Governor Pan Gongsheng said on Wednesday the central bank would provide emergency liquidity, liquidity support to, to debt-ridden local governments when necessary. He said that small banks that are exposed to scores of bad loans account for a very small proportion of the financial system. Mr Pan said most of China's local government debts are concentrated in provinces with larger economies and faster growth that have the ability to resolve debts on their own. Hong Kong Financial Secretary Paul Chan said on Wednesday that innovation and technology are the core engines of Hong Kong's economic growth. In a keynote speech on the final day of the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit, Mr Chan said our government has been the biggest investor in this area, investing over 200 billion Hong Kong dollars to build, consolidate and enrich the innovation and technology ecosystem in recent years. With me on the show today are Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Rue McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. And don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Wednesday, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq Composite notched their longest winning streak in nearly two years, extending November's rally. The S&P 500 added 0.1% to close at 4,383. The benchmark index rose for an eighth consecutive day, matching its eight-day win streak reached in November 2021. The Nasdaq Composite rose 0.1% to end at 13,650. The Nasdaq posted nine days of wins for the first time since an 11-day streak ended in November 2021. The Dow was the underperformer, falling 40 points or 0.1% to 34,112. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury fell 8 basis points to 4.5%. That's a five-week low as traders assessed the monetary policy outlook and monitored bond auctions. The interest rate-sensitive two-year yield rose 3 basis points to 4.94%. 
Brent crude oil fell below $80 a barrel on Wednesday for the first time since July as investors continue to scale back expectations that the conflict between Israel and Hamas would turn into a wider regional issue. Brent settled 2.5% lower at $79.54 a barrel. Gold prices continue to move lower but remain well off of their pre-Israel lows. The precious metal was down 0.9% at $1,950 an ounce. The US dollar index paired earlier gains to trade around the unchanged level at 105.5. The Japanese yen lagged with the US dollar Japanese yen rates briefly rising above 151 yen before ending the session 0.4% higher at 150.97 yen to the US dollar. The Chinese yuan was unchanged in onshore markets at 7.28 renminbi. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.2% at 3,052. The Shanghai Composite has fallen 1.2% this year, while the CSI 300 index has fallen more than 6%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 102 points, or 0.6%, to 17,568, ahead of Chinese inflation data later today. For 2023 so far, the city's benchmark index is off 11.2%. That's the worst performer among the major global equity index gauges. The tech index, that fell 0.9%. Does look like we're going to get a, a small rebound this morning of about 25 to 30 points at the open. That's about 0.2%. Looks like the index will start the day just below 17,600. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk creeping towards the end of the week on this Thursday morning as we do every Thursday we welcome Andrew Ferris the CEO of Econosis Advisory morning to you Andrew Uh, good morning and also joining us Alex Frew McMillan who is a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com morning to you Alex Top of the morning to you, Peter. Thank you very much. Um, let me start with the economy, because we had had quite a bit of data on both the mainland and the Hong Kong economy. Let me first of all get your thoughts on the trade data uh, that came out earlier this week. Imports expanded, surprisingly, for the first time since February. They rose by 3%. Um, people have been expecting a 4.8% drop. And it was uh, there was a 6.2% drop in September. Um, imports, uh, sorry, exports, uh, though, dropped 6.4% over the same period. That's the sixth consecutive month of declines. Um, Andrew, a bit of a mixed picture there, isn't it, on the on the trade side? On the one hand, doesn't look like uh, overseas demand is that great, but maybe domestic demand better than we thought. Well, God, I'm going to sound like an economist, which is a horrible thing to do towards the, the end of the week. Um, <laughs> improving inputs are always, in inverted commas, not a bad thing. Because, of course, inputs, China is a major importer, and not just the consumer goods, but, of course, com- goods for, for the production of other goods. Hence, an improving input picture is always a relatively good sign as to what may happen in industrial output. At the same time, however, exports are lagging. And that means that the trade surplus is shrinking and a smaller trade surplus overall over a period of time drags down GDP growth. So on one hand, I was looking at saying, well, you know, inputs looking a little bit better. Trade surplus is decreasing uh, and it has been decreasing. And that uh, sort of conflicts a little bit with the bullish GDP forecast of the IMF. Mm. And the IMF carried on emphasizing that uh, things are looking significantly better because of the support for the property sector by the central government, to which I slightly blinked 
because uh, I'm still looking very carefully to see really significant issues here. So I have no idea whether myself or the IMF are reading different numbers <laughs> or interpreting different things. Okay. So, so are you? Are you are, it is a mixed picture, and I'm afraid it's not. It's a little bit yucky. In other words, I, I can't tell you something significantly good or significantly bad. Let me pressure a bit here then. Are, are you the classic two-hand economist? On the one hand, you have exports subtracting from GDP, but on the other hand, imports sort of adding uh, to the domestic economy. Which one do you put more weight on? Where, where, which one would you sort of regard as being more important? Given, given that we had a, a significant um, series of numbers, particularly on industrial output in China, I prefer to be cheerful about the inputs improving because China is a major, major, huge. People don't forget this is China exports everything equally. China also imports everything. This is possibly the second biggest importer in the world. So if inputs are increasing, and of course, I would need to look at the structure of inputs as opposed to anything else, then that's a good thing. So the answer is no, I'm not going to tell you on the one hand or the other. I think I said overall, it's not hugely positive, but oh, God. Uh, I, I think it is basically okay. Okay. Alex, do you want to be positive? Do you want to be negative? Do you want to be uh, on the fence on this? What, what do you think? I think I would probably be slightly more negative uh, than Andrew. I mean, I think monthly data is always uh, spotty and tends to jump around a little. So it's useful to look at longer-term trends. And I think longer-term we're seeing that the economic numbers in china have been disappointing so uh one month of one indicator that's you know uh considerably better than expected but uh but you know doesn't a season make right so um I, I think you know seeing exports continue to fall is bad and these uh, sort of structural problems with the property market persist and that's going to be really hard to turn around and confidence is is lacking uh, from business and consumers. So I don't think any of those trends are really good. So the fact that imports um, jumped in one month doesn't really sort of undermine all of those other indicators that point uh, to negative trends. Um, interestingly, you know, imports from the US fell 3.7%. Um, and then uh, the the imports that were up were mainly coming from ASEAN, so Southeast Asia mm. and, and uh, European Union. So uh, I think Andrew's right that, I mean, the ASEAN inputs must be um, going into into production, uh, raw materials or parts uh, that, that are coming from factories in ASEAN or, or raw, raw from mines. Um, yeah, so uh, worth watching, but, but one month uh, doesn't make a lot of difference. Okay, we probably need more data, really, don't we? As you say, you can't mm. just rely on one month's data. But despite that, uh, the IMF has raised its forecasts for China's economic growth. It's citing stronger policy support from Beijing. The fund said China's GDP would grow 5.4% in 2023, upgrading its previous forecast of 5%. For next year, the growth forecast was revised up from 4.2% to 4.6%. But the IMF cautioned that weakness in the property sector and subdued external demand would persist. Um, Andrew, I don't know, is this telling us anything that we don't know already? Uh, not really. I, it's, it's interesting because I, I, st I will still need to look at the details of the IMF, uh, uh, of the IMF forecast because the Chinese will be very happy if they hit the 5% because 
that is a kind of a, of an important politically significant number. You know, you cannot grow less than. But interesting also, the IMF says looking forward, the GDP growth is likely to fall around four and even below the four percent rate because of demographics. Because well, I leave the demographic aside and I'll simply call it the whale effect, meaning that the Chinese economy is becoming an enormous economy in absolute terms. I wouldn't say the same as the United States because it's not anywhere near yet that. But if you have a whale and you expect that the whale is going to increase by six or seven percent, <laughs> that's a hell of a large increase. Mm. Okay, as opposed to having a small economy that is growing. Hence, uh, China is going to hit the same kind of, uh, I call it a quasi-statistic brick wall, the same thing as the United States or Japan, that one could not possibly expect the United States to grow year after year at 6 or 7%. It's highly unlikely. I don't know how it could be done, given the size of the economy. So as the Chinese economy grows absolute, in absolute terms bigger, very, very likely the proportional impact of that on GDP growth is going to be down. In other words, you're still going to have a very large economy growing very satisfactorily at 3 or 4%, but not at 6% or 7%. Mm. Um, Alex, the, if you look into what the IMF said, they're basically saying the reason why they're upgrading their forecast is the authorities have introduced numerous measures to support the property market, although they did say more needs to be done uh, to secure a quicker recovery. But I guess based on what you were saying when we were talking about the trade data, you're not so convinced that enough has been done to uh, support the property market. That's right. I think the measures have been piecemeal and not very large scale and not very effective so far. So uh, the government has sort of said that it's doing a lot and has made a lot of very small changes to down payment ratios and making the rules the same in tier one cities as they are in tier two and tier three cities. But it doesn't uh, seem to have translated into higher sales yet. So sales are still looking really, really poor. And I think once people lose confidence in the property market, which seems to be what's happened, it's really hard to regain that. So mm -hmm. the sort of a, uh, property industry in China is in a kind of downward spiral of confidence going down, leading to lower uh, home uh, purchases, leading to lower prices, leading to less fewer land sales from developers, which doesn't help the local governments and, and so on. It just sort of seems to be a self-fulfilling prophecy for now. Um, so I guess it would take a really forceful measure from the Chinese government to support the industry to change that. And so far, they've kind of resisted pumping lots of credit into that industry. They've kind of tweaked the rules a little bit here and there. Um, mm. That so far doesn't seem to have made a fundamental difference. Well, Andrew, what's been noticeable this week, because there's been several conferences going on here in uh, Hong Kong, also in uh, China as well, is how much um, officials at the People's Bank of China seem to be talking down the risks of the, uh, the property sector. The deputy uh, governor of the People's Bank of China was basically saying... Um, that what we were seeing was um, a natural selection and market clearing process. That's what he called it. And he said many of the, uh, of the borrowings are backed by physical assets. The governor of the People's Bank of China was basically saying yesterday, really, it's, it's not a problem because local property uh, debts, the biggest amounts are in the larger provinces that can easily service this debt. Um, but he was saying anyway, they'll be willing to step in um, and support local governments where, where needed. What, what do you make of that? They seem to be really playing this down, don't they? Um, 
it is, it is not unnatural that they would or should. Uh, what always concerns me, particularly in big conferences, this is, of course, the, the blah, blah effect has to be there. And I, I don't blame them, neither I, I consider this to be a criticism. But then it is never really connected with uh, what I call one of my favorite films, uh, is a film I've actually forgotten the title, where the main character all the time goes around saying, show me the money, show me the money. <laughs> Oh. Okay, and uh, I, you know, I would like to say, okay, this is, is very good. Okay, we will be supporting. Okay, tell me by how much. But there is about uh, there is a, a, an announcement concerning uh, 137 billion. Uh, it's sovereign debt that is going to go in support of uh, of uh, of local authorities. But this was said in a broad sense, mm. as opposed in terms of resolving the the local authorities' debt issue which uh, has been repeatedly said, we're going to find ways in which this is going to be resolved. Well, what are these? I mean, are we going to have a bad bank? Are we going to have a, 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 an institution that's going to take over all the bad debt? Or simply, it's going to be done on a case-by-case -case, uh, approach. So, yes, <laughs> but the, I'm afraid the God is in the details. And the details... Uh, tend to be a little bit lacking. If, I like the fact also that they have now increased the capacity of the fiscal deficit of going up from 3%. I remember it worked to about 3.8%, which they can well, well afford to do it. Uh, that's, that's a good sign. That also was a number. It's not going to say, we're going to increase the fiscal deficit. Well, and says, well, it's going to go from about 3% to perhaps uh, hitting even 4%. Yeah, I like that. Right. I suppose the thing is, if there was an institution that could take over this bad debt, it's the central government, isn't it? They're, they're, they're really the only institution with a clean Absolutely. balance sheet in control. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't have the private sector saying, don't worry, we'll take up all the defaulting loans. I mean, you know, you, you don't do that, even if you buy them at a very cheap price. Okay, yes. Alex, what do you make of this? I mean, Mr. Zhang was basically saying the difficulties facing the housing market. It's just natural selection, just a market clearing um, process. Well, if I could address the most pressing issue, I think the movie that Andrew was referencing is Jerry Maguire. That's it. That's the one. I was trying to think of it as well. <laughs> but, um, but I think natural selection sounds good. I mean, the aim of introducing the three red lines in the property industry when they did that in August 2020 was to sort of drive cowboy operators and ones that had got heavily over leveraged out of business and that is a good thing. So if natural selection can really happen, and it is happening, I mean, a lot of developers have gone out of business already, um, that would be a good thing. Um, the problem is, you know, when you get developers that are too big to fail, so to speak, that, um, you know, people are really depending on for hundreds of thousands of apartments to be completed, and those start failing and, you know, maybe other developers aren't so keen to take over the, the projects that haven't been completed. That could be a problem. So, um, yeah, I did think some of the, the comments were sort of funny. It was kind of like, a, uh, uh, there's there's no problem here, nothing to see here. Yeah, oh, but we've, we've let's got move on. Nothing covered. to see here. <laughs> nothing, no problem, but we've got the problem covered. You know, <laughs> so it's contradictory. Um, uh, you do expect a bit of blah blah effect and you know don't worry we've got it all under control the decline in the property industry under control but i do think that the central government could bail out um 
trouble developers, you know, if they want to. I think they're trying to work out how to do that. So far, it seems that what they want to do is direct state-owned developers to buy projects off troubled private sector developers or, um, you know, possibly make uh, uh, equity infusions into those companies and sort of have joint ventures or partial ownership of, of a private developer from a state-owned developer. Mm. Um, so I, I do think they have the wherewithal to support developers that they want to, and I think they're just sort of trying to decide how to do that. Actually, Alex, thanks very much for saving me over Jerry Maguire, because, of course, that immediately leads me to another, where that's not Hollywood. This is, well, sort of kind of Hollywood. Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. Okay, carry on repeating that. Well, somebody at the background is saying, show me the money. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful juxtaposition. You know, Hollywood covers everything. I call it particularly, particularly the Clint Eastwood financial economics, which is, go ahead make my day <laughs> when it comes to raising interest rates by central banks i think these uh, these conferences missed a trick a bit here didn't they they could have included some clips from all these uh, these hollywood blockbusters in their I conference know, I know. I should, I should, I should advise them on their sound effects. Yes, <laughs> but if, if there was a true market clearing process for for the housing market, um, which there isn't really, is there? Because if there was, you would remove all these uh, all these restrictions, let developers sell property at whatever prices they can get. Let's find out what is the real clearing price of all this um, excess property that's on the market. So that, that would be the the right way to do it, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, I'll go back to my, my needle is stuck with uh, the index of uh, uh, new home prices in 70 big and small Chinese cities, all of which has been going down for nearly 18 months. Okay, well, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing is chasing it, chasing it downwards to see whether it clears or not. The market is telling you that for a year and a half, we don't like what we're seeing. In other words, or significantly there are more sellers than buyers in the market mm -hmm. okay a profound nobel prize winning statement when it comes to to, to falling prices so uh, peter yes you are right but uh, i don't think this is something that uh, the authorities will say okay we let the markets clear them out mm. it's already doing it because the, the the prices are coming down well you know I mean, Alex, I can't imagine they're going to do it, but if they, if they really want to call it a, a market clearing process, if it was a true market clearing process, that is what they would do, isn't it? Yes, but we can look at uh, Xi Jinping's comments uh, about natural monopolies to see uh, where the Chinese government's true priorities lie. And there he's basically saying that natural monopolies are a good thing and that the state-owned industries, railways, uh, energy generation, are, are a, uh, it's good that they are state monopolies, and that's where we're going to pump our money in order to revitalize the economy. He doesn't trust the private sector for a second mm. um, and has kind of uh, belittled it by saying that, you know, there's three important uh, segments of the economy in China, the government state-owned enterprises, oh, and the private sector. And, of course, the private sector is far bigger than uh, uh, collectively um, than, than either of those and much more vital and entrepreneurial and profit-generating and efficient. But uh, she, being a, a sort of a good 
um, central government top-down leader really doesn't trust the private sector for a second. And we can see how in the past they've punished uh, Jack Ma and just about every successful private business and have been forcing them to do philanthropic efforts in industries that they're not even connected to. So that's why we see, now see Jack Ma, China's most successful entrepreneur, you know, teaching uh, at universities and starting a school, which is not, it is his, his background and training, but it's not where he sort of showed his expertise. Um, so I, I don't think that they really want the private sector to be leading the economy or, or, or to give it free reign. Um, Andrew, I, I was very intrigued by what President Xi Jinping was saying here in his support and, and love for natural monopolies. He was basically saying things like uh, the railways, uh, for example, uh, the energy sector, um, more state investment needed to sa safeguard national security. This is a, a turnaround from what late Premier Li Keqiang uh, was talking about, because he was talking about reforming these natural monopolies and opening them up to competition from the market. But clearly, President uh, Xi Jinping doesn't intend to allow that at all. At least uh, President Xi is, is consistent with the overall trend of leadership of the Communist Party, and that is greater centralization. Uh, we had uh, the setting up of two separate institutions to look after uh, the overall performance of the financial sector, okay, and uh, in a sense even downgrading the role of the People's Bank of China. So this kind of uh, policy statement should not be surprising. Now, the fact that it contradicts, well, you know, as Kane said, when things change and data change, what do I do? He says, I change my mind. Okay, so if the, uh, the Communist Party feels that the way in which the economy is developing so far requires much further top-down direction, so be it. I'm afraid I, I, I don't pay too much attention to overall statements because some of them i'm going to use a very interesting english expressions they are hortatory in other words he says more or less it would be a good idea or it is something that we should be looking at as opposed to saying that's exactly what we're going to do and also using the word natural monopolies i would like to know the translations from chinese because in a, in an american textbook uh, expression and natural monopoly is not quite exactly the power sector and the railways. Mm. Natural monopoly is, is, is uh, if you have complete control, let's say, over one particular resource, like coal, for example, or oil. But, uh, and also one mixes up continuously when one says anybody, never mind uh, uh, the president, uh, power, okay, the power sector. Well, the power sector consists of three completely different areas. Com consists of production, consists of distribution and then consists of metering at household level and this can be three completely different sectors mm. but but alex alex should we watch carefully from a market perspective an investment perspective what president she is saying here because obviously this is the, the president's and we know from past experience when he's said these comments before and he's made sort of raised flags about various things they happen to come true so should we be watching the uh, the power sector the railway sectors now Yes, I think uh, when she speaks, you know, the rest of the government listens and it, it, he does sort of set important uh, agendas. So if this really becomes a catchphrase that he repeats uh, 
in the future. Um, you know, natural monopolies may be a, a new slogan. Um, I can, you know, understand why uh, you would say that the energy sector is important, um, you know, f f to, to keep safe and safeguard. I'm not sure whether sort of that element of national security is the same thing as saying, well, it, all of the uh, capital that we've got needs to be invested in this direction in order to uh, preserve national security. That kind of doesn't seem to make sense. So uh, it kind of it seemed like he was conflating a couple of different uh, themes there. So saying that this is an important sector to to make sure that we've got security in is one thing. And then saying, oh, well, it's a national security priority to invest capital in this sector, uh, perhaps when you, you don't need it in that area, you know, doesn't doesn't really fit to, to my mind. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen in other countries that you can privatize um, parts of, if not all of these sectors. Uh, it may not always be a great idea when it comes to railways, you know, <laughs> British railways that have been privatized have not done terribly well or had good performance. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, I think it's important to look at what he said specifically there and also to realize that he's really still talking about, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government controlling the economy and directing the economy, uh, which translates into less uh, freedom for the private sector, less power for the private sector, not literally, but, uh, but figuratively speaking. Okay. Um, some more comments from senior government officials. One here I wanted to ask you about. China's Vice President Hang Zheng said yesterday that recent high-level meetings have helped improve the China-US relationship. Uh, he was speaking at a forum in Singapore, and he says the meetings have sent out a positive signal and raised the expectations of the international community on the improvement of China-U.S. relations. He said a stable and sound China-U.S. relationship is the common expectation of all sectors in our two countries and the international community as a whole. And he added, we're ready to strengthen communication and dialogue with the U.S. at all levels. Um, and you've definitely been detecting a change of tone coming out of Beijing in terms of its relationships with um, its neighbours in Asia and also the US. It seems to be um, toned down a lot now, the rhetoric against the US. It's welcomed the Australian PM uh, to, to Beijing and said in relations are improving there. Are, are you getting the same feeling that maybe, um, you know, that things are, are improving a bit in terms of some of these international relations with China? Well, in terms of... Uh uh, the semiotics, the signs that is being given. Yes, also I was fascinated that uh, President Xi, when he's in uh, in San Francisco, is going to sit down to an intimate dinner of several hundreds of, of American CEOs. But I think it's very nice. I mean, it is, uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, it is, it is, it is the right thing to do. Now, how much, in actual terms, you're going to get out of that? It's very little. But on the other hand. Previously, they wouldn't do that. Now they're doing it, so it's a nice sign. I think one one has to be, one has one has to. I like this expression. One has to. You know, I have to say to myself, one, I have to realize that a lot of the issue is what I call an uh, oil in the wheels, blah blah. In other words, it's not it's not significantly in absolute terms, but uh, it shows that when we come to sit down and discuss actual events and actual tendencies and policies, the atmosphere might be a little bit might be a little bit different. I think that's that's very fair. It would be very unfair to say 
that the Chinese are being disingenuous here because they were not being anything before. <laughs> Even if they are being disingenuous and are not for one moment suggest that, okay, at least they are being something uh, positive. Mm. I mean, they are not being disingenuous, okay. Alex, what do you think? A number of things coming up at the moment, aren't there, as well as these comments yeah. um, there. We've also got US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, she's going to meet Chinese Vice Premier Her Lefing uh, today and tomorrow. And then also this, this rumour that uh, President Xi, uh, Xi Jinping is going to have this dinner with, you know, these 300 or so top US business executives. It all seems to be pointing in a positive direction, doesn't it? Yes, I think the Biden administration is pulling off a, a tricky sort of two-step uh, dance where they're talking tough on business and uh, semiconductor uh, regulations and restricting access for China to get uh, high-end chips. Uh, and then, you know, uh, on the diplomatic front, they've really uh, reopened channels of communication and have been meeting uh, with a lot of uh, ministerial level meetings and then also you know it seems presidential level um and i think also at the same time china has become less defensive about covid and investigations into the origins of covid and you know that whole issue has sort of uh, died down a little so perhaps they're a little warmer to these overtures uh, and certainly you know when we saw the australian pm going to uh, Beijing, I, th I think uh, that's in large part because the anger that China had when Australia demanded an invest investigation into the roots of COVID has kind of died down. And Australia is a very important trade partner for China in both directions. Um, so uh, we were certainly seeing, uh, I think the US kind of began those uh, communications again and China's now responding. And, and yeah, I think it, it's very positive on the diplomatic front to have these kinds of connections because not having the two biggest superpowers in the world talk to each other was, was not a good thing. Okay. Well, let me finish up on the markets. The uh, couple of big things today. First of all, uh, Treasuries coming off the boil quite a lot now. The US 10-year Treasury yield down another seven basis points overnight. It's at 4.5%. It was only a couple of weeks ago that it was above 5%. I think it reached a high of about 5.2%. But investors seem to be ignoring uh, what the central bankers are saying, who are who are basically saying it's too uh, too early uh, to say that there won't be any more rate rises. The Bank of England governor Andrew Bailey was saying that. We also had a warning uh, from some ECB officials and from the U.S. Federal Reserve governor Michelle Bowman, who said she expects actually rates to rise further. Um, so, Andrew, what do you think? Are we getting a bit of a disconnect again between the bond markets and what the central bankers are saying? You can say that again. Look what happened to Australia. Australia rose interest rates against uh, a huge amount, well, against a fair amount of expectations. Guess what happened to the Aussie? It came down. Huh? Mm. <laughs> if we do expect that the Americans will are reaching the top, then an increase in Aussies simply widens not only the existing, but also the potential future differential. And the Aussie simply weakened. And the explanations were completely asinine. I mean, I, I read them, and <laughs> it's not a matter that I agree or disagree. It just didn't, didn't make any sense. So Australia is not perhaps the most important or amongst the most important central banks. These are the four ones, Japan, China, the European Union, and the Fed. But it is, it is a major, major country, and it's just increased interest rates, mm. worrying about inflation. Okay. So, yeah, there is, uh, there is a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance here. And, uh, you know, I never bought the interpretation 
of Powell that, uh, oh, sorry, the interpretation of people attributed to Powell that we are more or less reaching the top right now. Mm. That's what he said. Well, anyway, and that's not what I interpreted. Alex, we've got Jerome Powell speaking later today and uh, to the IMF, so we may hear some comments directly from him about his thoughts on uh, on interest rates. But nevertheless, uh, the central bankers, uh, not only are they saying, you know, rates aren't going to come down, there is still the possibility that rates could go up uh, further from here. But the bond markets are telling a different story. Well, I think you've got the, the US central bankers generally saying that there may be you know, hinting there may be one more rate rise to come. And I think that's what's uh, happening there. Uh, while, uh, you know, the Bank of England uh, may may cut in 2024. And people do expect the Fed to cut in 2024 as well. So it, I think it, it depends on which period of time you're looking at. If we're looking at towards the, the end of the year, early next year, we, we may see another U.S. interest rate rise, and we have seen Australia just raise rates, as Andrew said. Um, but you know, we might have the Bank of England cut, and then uh, we'll see what the ECB does in the future. So, I think short term, maybe one or two rate rises, but we're seeing central banks um, and India has paused, it seems, and uh, you know, so I, I think we're nearing the top of of rates but perhaps not quite there yet. And, of course, they're not all going to act at exactly the same time and doing exactly the same thing. So, we, we, you know, we're going to see one cut rates before before the others. Maybe short-term, uh, either a standing paddle raising once and then cuts later next year and going to into 2025. Okay. Finally, Andrew, let me ask you um, about the local market here. The Hang Seng uh, slipped again yesterday. It's off 11.2% uh, for the year. The Shanghai Composite down 1.2% this year. The CSI 300, that's fallen more than 6% so far this year. Here's what Wang Jingjun said. He's vice chair of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, which is the market watchdog. He basically said domestic debt and equity markets are full of opportunities right now. He was saying that at the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit in Hong Kong. He said, it's never too late to catch the China train. You can still ride the dragon to heaven. Strange thing for a regulator to say, in my mind. But nevertheless, what do you make of that, Andrew? Uh, I raised uh, my eyebrow because at least in the case of, uh, in the case of Hong Kong, um, you know, our top was about 21,000. Now it's 17,000. It's, it's a long, long way okay, to, to go back to to kind of pre-called it, actually, that's a little bit nonsensical, uh, to, to, let's say, one-year levels. The reason for that is terribly simple, and that is that uh, the engines of the Hong Kong's GDP growth, which is primarily tourism, and to some extent the property sector, are all uh, sputtering rather than, uh, rather than roaring. And very important, we don't yet have falling interest rates. You know, until and when the Fed decides otherwise, interest rates in Hong Kong stay where they are. So I, I don't know how I would read that. In other words, what is going to change that is going to make all this happen? And unless somebody says, I really strongly believe that interest rates are going to come down in six months' time, so start buying it now, then, then you know, I will raise my, my, I raise my eyebrow. Okay. Alex, finally to you, are you ready to ride the dragon to heaven, referring to the stock market here? I think he might be chasing the dragon rather than riding the dragon there. <laughs> uh, um, I'm not too sure 
what he's talking about. Um, you know, I mean, I think that is blah, 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 uh, saying Hong Kong's great. And, you know, interest rates are high because we have U.S. interest rates and that's really hurt the stock market. And then we've got the, the property downturn in China uh, also influencing developers here. So not a lot of positive trends short term at the moment. And the Hong Kong stock market has been a serial disappointment for multiple years, you know, sometimes the worst performing major market in the world. Um, so uh, it's been a tough time for equity investors, for sure. And it will take uh, a change in China's economic prospects and a change in U.S. interest rates downwards to, to change that. Okay, well, thank you very much. You heard there Alex Fru McMillan, who is a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com, and Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details on the latest business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Corinne Hearn, partner and chief sustainability officer at East Capital Group. And with a view from Australia, is Toby Lawson, the CEO at Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk. <laughs>